How did you survive, Poppy? His gaze swept back to mine, lashes lowered halfway. How have you not let the night of the craven attack make you afraid of everything? Because you are fearless, whether it be facing a swarm of cravens, staring into the eyes of a wolven, or when you push back at me, even knowing what I am. His question caught me off guard, as did the knowledge that he saw me as fearless. I, it's not that I'm without fear. I do fear things. Interest sparked his golden eyes. I don't believe that. There was no way I'd admit to him that I feared myself more than I could ever fear a craven woven or even him. I survived because I refused to ever be helpless again. That kept me from caving to the fear. That's what helped me push through the pain of training with Victor, the aches and bruises. God, I love that passage because it's very much like everything I was kind of going through. The part where she's like, there's no way I admit to him that I feared myself more than I could ever fear a craven woven or even him. Like, I feel like we've all been in those moments where we're like, I am more afraid of myself than anything, of well, like, but- letting myself down. And so, yeah. it's like a universal like message. It's it's hard when very natural desires and like human experiences have been demonized Uh, and so every time you experience something like that you have to remind yourself that it's okay yeah like there's only so far that you can do that before it becomes difficult like when you're unlearning those kinds of doctrines yeah exactly so that was from chapter seven of a kingdom of flesh and fire which is what this episode is all about all about (laughs) all about it Uh, Book two in the Blood and Ash series. By Jennifer L. Amentrout. Yes. So this picks up right at the end of book one when Castile has dropped on her that his new plan is to marry her instead of use her for ransom. Uh, It's a little unclear at first how he decides to go about this because even everyone in the room, all of his followers are just as confused as she is. (laughs) obviously she comes around because she doesn't immediately tear his head off Mm. but she does try to kill him well we got into that uh last episode so you if you have not listened to the last episode the of from blood and ash where we cover the first book from blood and ash go listen to that first because we're not gonna review it for you (laughs) only if something related comes up so book one was very much about poppy discovering her identity and trying to define herself separate from being the maiden and book two starts just after she's decided to cut that tie and it's exploring her ability to define herself so beyond just emotions but also in choices Especially because she's learning that her entire life was a lie. The mission was fake for the most part, semi-fake. The religion that she was a figurehead for is fake. 
the gods themselves are not fake. So we find out throughout Kingdom of Flesh and Fire that the gods are actually very real, very real beings, but the religion that the Ascended have built around them in order to like enforce their own power and control over the people of Solus is very much made up. It's just made up so that they have like this constant food supply and essentially brought children of the noble class into their cult too by converting them into ascended so what could be a possibly rebellious class up to their power is also very much entwined with them so they can't really escape it Mm. and everything that she's learned about atlanteans her entire life and wolven is all false so the very end of book one we find out that atlantean blood is actually very healing and then at the in specific parts of book two we see just how dangerous Ascended actually are, Mm. um, which we'll get a little bit more into detail on that as we discuss some of the other topics. And then on top of that, it turns out there's entire parts of the country that are like completely unknown. So Mm. there's Pompeii, not to be confused with our version of the destroyed Pompeii, but Pompeii, a city that the Ascended descended on and just demolished. Like they ate everybody, left them where they were standing, and then just left the city. And it's right near the edge of the country. And near that is another one where they did that too called Spess's End, which as far as the Ascended are concerned, is still just decimated. Mm. But here we see that the Atlanteans and the Wolven have started to rebuild it in an attempt to start claiming back their lands that they lost during the war. Um, And then another fun little thing that I'm sure will mean something more later, there's this clan called the Dead Bones clan, and they're just like crazy-ass mortals who are cannibals. Nice. So if you pass through their lands and they're feeling particularly peckish, they'll attack you. (laughs) And we get a fun little experience with them along the way. While they're riding on a horse together. Naturally. Um, So romantic, because they fight and hug each other. (laughs) A lot. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But a lot of what she thought she knew about the world that she lives in is just really having to be reformed, which is a great narrative environment. I I would say for somebody who's also trying to assert their own identity is like, she's actually given this new world where she can make new choices to be herself. Yeah. That's, that's a really good point because not only is she learning how to make distinctions in her personal life now that like everything and everyone she's known is dead and gone and crumbled, she's now having to make distinctions politically. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is she seems to be this very central to the political world still. Like, she's still very relevant. There is a battle scene in this book where the Ascended attacks Bess's end, and they have to defend it. And we get to see the lovely Duchess Tierman again. Yes. And just before any... Before anyone attacks, she comes up in the middle of everyone, like, on, like, standby. Like, in the middle of what's about to be a battlefield. Exactly. Negotiating with Poppy. 
And it makes me think like, what do they want with her? Like she can no longer be the maiden. She's not like how, like she doesn't seem to be valuable to anyone anymore. Like just let her go, but yeah, they still need her. And so that makes me think that there's much more to it. Especially like when that scene first started immediately Castile revealed himself as the dark one. So like Tierman didn't know that yet until that moment. And so she has fun with him for a second, but she also directs herself still to Poppy until she realizes she's there. So like when presented with, with this figure that's supposed to be trying to usurp her queen, she's still directing herself to Poppy because he's not as of as much interest to her. Yeah. Which is so weird because he is a royal. He is like the prince yeah. of Indians. And so something tells me that there's more to her identity than everyone's letting on. There's a reason she was chosen for the maiden that she's never been told. That yeah, like there's a reason she's been held safe for them until like at the very end of the book, spoiler alert, at the very end of the book, we do find out that that she comes from the bloodline coming from like the king of the gods. And so that kind of answers the question, but it also doesn't entirely clarify what purpose she was serving. Mm. Because when she was set up as the maiden, like she could have been anything. Like when you set her up as the maiden, though, you're setting her up to serve a purpose within like this machine that you've built around this country. And so they could have had anybody be the maiden again. Mm. And so like you're saying, like there's this obvious kind of underlying purpose to her existing the way she was that they're trying to reassert so that's kind of like a bit of a foreshadowing um that poppy is much more tied into the politics than previously believed like because we took away the maiden and yet she's still relevant and still important so to to the ascended to the ascended yes Kind of on the note of like how we find out or when we find out about who her, I would, I'm going to say like great grandpa or something I'm assuming is there's a part when, and I wish I had the the chapter or something on hand. I just, I specifically remember the quote. There's a part when she talks about how Castile is looking at her and she says something along the lines of, he looked at me as one would look upon a God and I'm like, you're just going to throw these words at us yeah, and like get us all excited for this. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm not already freaking out, <laughs> like, but it's the same as when she was kind of dropping hints about a hawk not being hawk. Right. Right. It's kind of, it's almost quippy. Like mm. I enjoy when she does that. Yeah. When Armour Trout does that. Yeah. And that, so that opening quote is very much like. Castile opening up about his trauma being like imprisoned by the ascended for Mm -hmm. so long sexually abused starved all of these things um yeah that was definitely okay so I mean I know I defended him pretty aggressively last time when we were talking about the way he kind of shut out shut down after he revealed his identity I read these books back to back I so, I mean, I started it the next day yeah. after finishing Blood and Ash. And so I think for me, that kind of def- that kind of explained that behavior a little bit. Like, he's just as much a victim trying to navigate a world that he doesn't 
for sure for sure um feel safe in anymore he's made himself feel safe but we see time and time again just like how worried he is yeah like we get to see him grow as well and um we might not be able to see the inside of his head but he makes it pretty well known in the second book when he starts to kind of open up with Poppy, which is what that that passage kind of entailed was him opening up about the horrible things that he did out of revenge for them taking his brother, et cetera. Um, I think that's the first time that he opens up to her as Castile too. Right, right. Yes, be, that's, that's something we never really touched on. There is a, an identity shift for him. Yeah. Because he is being Hawk for so long and there is a difference. Because Castile has a bit more grit. He's a bit more unpredictable. He's a bit less... I don't want to say... uh, Yeah, I don't want to say less gallant, but he's a bit more like, I do what I want kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't have a lot of... He doesn't have a lot of reservations or he, he definitely is a prince in the way that he doesn't... He acts as if he doesn't have a lot of consequences. Yeah. Uh, not only that, but he like can't die. Like it's really hard to kill him. She so, literally like, stabbed him in the heart. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, but he let him, but he let her. Yeah. Like he, he could have 100% stopped her. I think Boy's so. Always got a death wish. Cause that's another um, thing. Yeah. Because that's another thing we never really, that I completely forgot about was that he's fast. As yeah. an Atlantean, he's just quicker. And so I think it almost surprised her. That she landed that she the blow. to kill him. Yeah. End of the blow. Okay. So you talked about how he's got this kind of identity shift. Poppy also consistently brings up the, like the masks that he's wearing. There were a couple of times when it did remind me of like Shrek when he talks about ogres have layers, but as the book goes on, she'll have moments where she's like, Oh, I could see the Castile mask going up or I could see the Prince mask going up. Right. Because there's like just that subtle change in his behavior when she can tell he's about to be like a prince and like assert his dominance over somebody. Yeah. And that reminded me a lot of the way that she uses the maiden identity when she's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Because when she first meets Alistair, who, so just so you guys understand, we're looking at notes, obviously. We've got a list of characters. And the way I've defined Alistair is just as the asshole because I hate Alistair. I cannot wait to see him die. I hope he dies in a fire. Um, but she meets Alistair <laughs> and everyone in the room is like responding to his, just his presence, his power. And she doesn't know how to respond. So she just immediately reverts back to being the quiet maiden. And even, even Castile notices. And so he kind of like tells her like, stop that, be normal. And she's just like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. And so her response is to be like that. Whereas like you see kind of the opposite end of that with Cass in a couple of different ways. So in his masks um, is one of those ways. But then you also see it with his habit of turning to sex to... Yeah. Um, reconcile his to reconcile yeah or to kind of to try to express his feelings towards her as like this victim of sexual abuse that like that makes sense as a way it would have manifested because he doesn't know how to express himself necessarily at that point right and another thing too that 
I remember is he definitely shows himself to Poppy more. Yes. And more. We were talking about earlier about how Atlanteans have like this kind of magical love spell. Yes. (laughs) Where they like, when they love someone, they only want to feed on them. And so it's like a physical, like exclude, like it's a physical manifestation of their love where they like won't seek out to feed from other people. And I mean, we haven't gone into that quite yet. So then we know that Castile is kind of letting his guard down a little bit with her and is able to like express himself more with her, which is really nice to see the male also change in love. Yes. Yes. Like get more vulnerable and like you can see how he melts a little bit more and becomes a different person and a better person because of her. Yeah. And Kieran, like, so Kieran's the one who tells her that he also kind of throughout the book is just making like passive comments about like how much Castile actually likes her. And she's just not, not listening, hearing it (laughs) at all. Um, It's funny because I think like Kieran is probably the number one shipper for them too. We as viewers are seeing that shift a little bit. She's still stuck up in her head, so she doesn't really see it. So even though we're seeing that shift, it is nice to have Kieran's affirmation of that as well. Mm. Like, even though his behavior seems a little off, he's trying to do it in a way that he knows how. Well, it's funny because you you describe his behavior as being a little off, but I actually would disagree because he seems most consistent, in my opinion. Oh, no, I don't, I don't mean like inconsistent. I mean, like off in a emotionally mature way. Like he's, it's not an emotionally mature response. The way that he's acting, it's consistent, but it's very much the kind of response that you'd expect from somebody who doesn't quite know how to get it across otherwise. Cause there's even the part when he's trying to thank her. He's like, are we talking about Castile or Kieran? Castile. Oh, I thought we were talking about Kieran. Oh, I was just saying like Kieran, like asserting. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Okay. No, we're good. We're good. Okay. So then we're good. I feel like with this book, I feel like the crux of this book, and it was really starting to kind of develop in the last book. And we like wanted to talk about it, but we're like, I don't know. I think this is like better for this episode because it's Poppy's journey of kind of understanding herself in the world and how to make choices, the right choices. And so kind of from the first book, just kind of going back a bit, when she loses her maidenhood to Mm -hmm. her hawk, Flynn, and this passage where she says, a shallow breath lifted my chest, that was it. I'd crossed the final forbidden line. There was no shock or guilt or burst of panic. It didn't matter if the gods found me unworthy because I was worthy of this, of laughter and excitement of happiness and anticipation, of safety and acceptance, of pleasure and experience, of everything Hawk made me feel. And he was worthy of whatever consequences came from this because this wasn't just about him. I knew that from the moment I'd asked him to stay, it was about me, what I wanted, my choice. I feel like as the maiden coming from a very religious imposed sexuality, we see with Poppy that her actions were more true to who she was than exactly what she was thinking or Mm -hmm. feeling at the time. And so 
there's also a moment later where she's talking to Hawk and she's telling her that this was wrong. She is still kind of battling with that a bit. And this is all, of course, from the first book. And I think when it comes down to it, though, she would rather her actions spoke louder than those like doubts, right? So she would rather be wrong and have chosen it than wrong, you know? Yeah. Wrong to herself. And so when it comes, so in a kingdom of flesh and fire, now Poppy is trying to navigate this like new world that's literally been flipped on its head. Um, And she's having to make important choices now that are informed not by the people around her who govern her, but by her own experiences. And Mm -hmm. so her own actions are important for her in this book. And like, like losing her maiden head to like Hawk, um, there's that moment when she, in the second book, when she is kidnapped by Lord Cheney and she gets to see what the ascended is really like. And she gets to see it with her own eyes, not just what, Castile's been telling her because there is there is a bit of Stockholm syndrome that kind of comes into this where it's like she literally has nowhere to go she literally tried to run away and they like came and got her and put her in the room like there is a bit of that so it's like she really has nowhere else to go and so this kind of this kind of challenges that which is good because (laughs) because that's so then you she actually does get to go out into the world see how it really is and then come back and have a personal experience to inform her further decisions, which I think is really important. Well, I feel like the whole scene with, uh, with Lord Cheney and then the ascended trying to steal her back and everything that's really big for her ability to make choices Mm -hmm. because before that she had kind of, she'd still been so caught up in her like own internal bullshit let, okay, so like there's a there's a key element to this, the Cheney discovering them and everything, which is the Tullises. The Tullises are this family that she knew in Macedonia, where the city where she came from, um, because they had tried to petition to not have to give up their third child to the ascended to be the quote unquote like saint children that were given up, which we know now is a lie. And so she had felt like intense almost guilt for what they were going through. She felt bad for them. She felt really good for them when they escaped and they weren't there for the right and everything. Uh, But then at the very end of book two, Mr. Tullis is actually the one who lands what would be like the killing blow on her. And Mm -hmm. she just can't wrap her mind around why he would do that. And she keeps reiterating. So this is now we're into book two. She keeps reiterating to herself about how he how could he blame her when she felt so bad, when she was so happy for him, when he escaped. And so she hasn't quite realized that her actions are more indicative of her character and her identity than just her thoughts are, mm-hmm. because that also plays into how people are going to perceive you. Mm-hmm. And so after Lord Cheney, the Lord Cheney scene, I think is when that really shifts. And when she starts focusing more on her actions themselves than just like her, her feelings. Yeah. Particularly because of the kid in that scene. Right. Because she still doesn't believe, even if like, even if she knows she doesn't quite believe yet that the Ascended are as terrible as Cass has told her. And so when she tries to still like trade her life for the little boys and the boy dies anyway, and she's kidnapped. Yeah. She's really confronted with the fact that you have to, 
you, like you have to make choices. You don't have to be passive, mm-hmm. but those choices also have to be informed by your environment. Well, you have to know your opponent. Yeah. And then she does, she finds out, she finds out. Yes. Cheney's a dick. <laughs> <laughs> Both Did you say butthole or fuckhole? I said butthole. Oh. <laughs> Way more juvenile than fuckhole. We got both sides of the coin there, though. Yeah, yeah. Got all our bases covered. So it's after the battle then, because of course Cheney brought like an army of ascended knights um, and they kill some of the people there, namely children, naturally. But then there's some people that are left injured. And so this is, we kind of saved Poppy's gift a little bit for this episode because it becomes integral to her asserting her identity again. The gift is the part of her that I think they tried to tie very much to her being the maiden, Mm -hmm. but the gift is hers. It's not part of her maiden identity. She rejected the maiden identity and she still had it, which means it it wasn't tied to her being that religious figure. And she wasn't allowed to use it when she was the maiden. And so she pretty much jumped straight into just using it as much as possible because she knows that it's the one thing she can do to try to help the people just short of actually, you know, turning herself in and doing the original plan that they all want that Castile is not allowing anymore. Um, But throughout the book, so we mentioned before in book one that her ability to taste pain had progressed into just tasting feelings. Mm -hmm. So she can taste guilt, anger, fear, confusion. And she's starting to learn. Yes, lust. She's starting to learn to identify them. And she, and, and love. Yes. She doesn't really taste love until this book, which it's like chocolate and berries and it's so sweet. Um, (laughs) But beyond the feelings, she also finds out that she can heal with her touch. Mm. So there was a scene where a very young Wolven, while they're in Spessa's end, had been under like a building collapse and his legs had been broken. And we find out kind of later that for how bad they were broken, Beckett might have had his legs amputated. Right. And so it was like a very serious injury. And she goes over trying to just relieve his pain. But what ends up happening is like she glows and then his legs are healed. And within a couple of hours, he's walking completely normal. Mm. Yeah. And so that's like the biggest change i guess you could say in her identity also because her her gift is so tied into who she is it's spoken about because of course you have castile but mainly Aaron, who are like the commentary for her like gifts as like at atlantean because they find out she has atlantean blood right yeah in this book okay well they find out at the end of book one when he bites her right yeah that that fun little moment yeah Uh, when they have their like forest sex. Yeah, forest blood sex. So they're they're kind of walking her through because there's a coming of age that happens, right? So she's of the age now where like her magic's gonna become more stronger. And so they kind of like guide her through that. And that's kind of so they're they're all very interested in her gift. Oh, and then there's um Kieran's father. Oh yeah. I forget his name. I think it starts with a J. Let me look it up real quick. And he he's he marries them. Oh yeah. 
that little buddy. And then <laughs> Jasper. <laughs> Why do they call him little buddy? Because <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's like, he's right technically like the most powerful wolven <laughs> in the court. <laughs> and I'm like, come on, little buddy. Um, I trust him like at least 15 times more than I trust Alistair. Oh, yeah. No. And he's like the quiet one. Alistair's like the, hmm, you know, like the. He's kind of serious. Like it, it rubbed me the wrong way when she sees him and they're kind of like when they finally are on good terms and she's like, he reminds me of Victor. I'm like, bitch, she's nothing like Victor. Oh my God. Yeah. See, I didn't he would like that. never act like that. So I was like very much like, is Alistair her real dad? Because there's this whole like dialogue about like, oh, Alistair like helped people, people like escape. parents to try and escape. And so I was like, oh shit, is like he her dad? Like I was just like, there's gonna, there's so many like layers here. And then he kind of started getting more and more sour because like you immediately didn't like Alistair when he came on the scene. But I was, I was kind of with Poppy where I was like, <laughs> I, I, I am, I am Poppy. Okay. <laughs> I was like, I was like, Ooh, a commanding male figure. That's the thing though. That's you know, like, I, <laughs> that's exactly why she thinks that because she doesn't have any other, like, I'm going to say older end of middle-aged men in her life who are also commanding like a full room. Like that was the one thing about Victor is he was one of the oldest ones that were on the Royal or in the Royal guard. And you don't get there by being a dick. You get there by being powerful and knowing your shit. Yeah, exactly. And I think I was kind of like, Oh, is Alistair like Victor's brother? Like there's like, but I think definitely that was more of like a, this was, she was kind of wanting a bit yeah. in her life and Alistair kind of came on the scene but yeah back to Jasper Jasper becomes kind of he's almost kind of like a priest in a more like fun way like shaman I want to say like a more <laughs> yeah like a gentle guide an old wise man wizard woven who is like so they're all they all see her heal Beckett and they're all like super interested but they're all very all also very wary because they don't know where this is going to go because Mm -hmm. because of this period of time she's in of the only way I can describe it is coming of age I'm sure they have a better one in the book that I can't remember of this period of time when you're when your gifts and your powers start to like really come to light like that is it's very unpredictable and yeah. so they're, they're like, you need to be like careful because she was healing him and, and she was like, can't he just like change into his human form? And they were like, no, that's too dangerous. Like, we don't know what's going on. And so like, there's a lot of unknown with her powers. Yeah. There's a lot of like, not, I wouldn't say like skepticism or like, but you can definitely see the wheels turning with like Jasper and Kieran and Castile. Yes. Because they know the lore. They know like the history of well, the the different races and gods. Well, it's funny because Castile is like convinced at first that she's part of this Atlantean line mm. of empaths that are like a warrior bloodline. Um, so they're like really strong in battle, which she is, and they have the ability to feel emotions or taste emotions of others, and they're decimated and so he's thinking that she's part of this 
thought to be extinct bloodline that maybe has just had like half bloods hiding in solace and then eventually she came along but the healing thing is like not a part of right impassibilities and so that's when it's like in that scene where castile is like uh yeah you're fine and then like glares over at kieran and jasper and they're all like that's not normal (laughs) Yeah. yeah there's definitely something going on there even Castile like goes immediately to like PR mode because he's like, we need to control this story immediately. Yeah, yeah. Because the viewer, like the crowd that had gathered had already started running off. And his immediate thought is that people are going to take this and run with it. And the problem is too, one of the other names that they'd had in Atlantia for empaths for this bloodline was soul eaters because that was one of the things that they could do is they could like, draw from your emotions instead of your blood kill you yeah yeah and so they're now worried that this is going to get out of hand because one everyone knows that she has empath abilities and now it looks like she's got this extra ability and so people are going to start freaking out which they do naturally because there's another attempt on her life yeah and and that starts to grow in this book because she's not a welcome addition to the denier (laughs) Yeah, not at all. Establishment. Like, people are very much like wary about her, and she's having to, and that, and Alistair uses that. Oh, God. Yeah, he does. Like, there's that moment when they're all like in the dining room, and like they just, I think, decided to get married. Like, they were like, kind of like, oh, like at the end of the first book, they were, he's like, we're going to get married kind of thing. And then mm-hmm. this is like the moment where it was like, we actually love each other. And they have like this sweet cave sex. And then they're like, <laughs> which we'll get into. Oh and yeah. We'll talk about the cave sex. Yeah. And then they have like this moment where they're like, we'll get married. And then Alistair's there and they're all at the dinner table. And like, there's people with the people are like whispering and like giving her like looks and like Alistair's using like, oh, she does have Stockholm syndrome. Like she's just doing this to be safe. And he's like, trying to like fake being the good guy by being like, just tell me when you want to go and I'll get yeah. you out of here. And I'm like, you're a little too eager with that, sir. Yeah. Like I'm thinking like, what is he going to do with her at that point? That's when yeah. I was, like, that was the point where I was like, he's not good because he it was specifically him. that dinner scene too, where yeah. I, where I was like, that's bullshit because he just innocently brings up the fact that like he claims Castile is already engaged to like his his niece like Gina or something yeah yeah which is suspicious as hell because also Castile's ex who died was his daughter and so I find it very disgusting that yeah Alistair was quick to throw another woman in his family on Castile's junk but he just has this habit of like throwing out what is like essentially emotionally compromising information in a crowded room at her. Yeah, exactly. Because he wants to get like a scared reaction from her to make mm-hmm. her look weak. And so yeah. she, she is really just trying to like convince everyone that she really does love him. Like, and she does. And so it's it's almost it gets to the point where it's like frustrating too, because it's like she does love him and she admits it to herself finally, but people still don't believe it. People still think it's this con. It's like, imagine how fucking terrible that must have felt. But that scene was like so sweet because this is the first time when she publicly asserts her choice 
to yes. people. And that is a huge moment. And Castile knows that because the, I think he has like this, like it's like his tears are welling or like there's some, there's like quiver. I don't, his dimple. Something's quivering. Up. I don't know. Something happens where he, he notices that and he kind of melts a little bit. And so that like made me like really happy. <laughs> yeah. It's a good scene. So it happens kind of like caked in between them having other arguments. Yeah. About like so that eventually leads into them having the conversation where she's like, everything I said in the dining hall was true. And one of those things was literally that the first choice she ever made for herself was the choice to have Hawk. And so on the one hand also is book two is about her moving from the choice to have Hawk to her moving to the choice to have Castile, which is two completely different choices. Yes. Yes. Because the choice to have Castile means her acknowledging that he's been directly connected to some of the really hard pain that she's dealt with, but also realizing that being connected to it and being responsible aren't necessarily the same thing. Right. So yeah, that was a really sweet moment. I loved for them. And then I think they had like a long talk by the fire. He literally kneeled down to propose to her for real that time. Yeah. Which he does again later. I love when he's in that position in front of her. Because we, I think we mentioned it last time too, when he's trying to get her to remove her mask or her, well, her veil. Uh-huh. And so then he does it again when he's proposing, but he also does it at the end of the book when we find out like the kind of the bigger extent of her powers when she's got that assassination temp- attempt number two. Because he's the first one to kneel in front of her and recognize her power. He realizes what she is. And without a second thought, gets down on his knees and like bows to her. Oh yeah. It's so hot. It's so so hot. (laughs) (sighs) Hmm. I want to talk a bit about Kieran because he becomes a bigger role in this book. Yeah. As I was reading it, I like didn't really know much. I didn't really think much about him, but having to kind of go back and like talking about it. I'm loving, I love him. And I'm like, kind of hoping Almond Trout does this where she has to bathe in front of him because he like can't leave the room because she'll like escape in book one. Well, because she will escape. (laughs) When you put two characters in a room and one of them happens to be naked, like that's, you don't do that if there's not going to be more sometime down the line. And yeah. he is, and maybe this is a, I think it's more of a cultural thing in like the Atlantean woven world where you're just more open about like your bodies and like sex and stuff, yeah. which is a I really so. good thing for her to be in after like the train wreck she was in before. It's and less dogmatic around the body. Yeah, exactly. I like this. He's kind of a silent brooder. And I really like that. We learn more about his bond with Castile and that whole dynamic between Atlanteans and Wolven Mm -hmm. and the role that that takes. So there is, we kind of touched on it before that scene at the beach. So Castile has this bloodlust issue. How unfortunate because he like, (laughs) he like comes in, in the middle of the night 
into into their room and popped. No, his they, he woke up. She woke him up. Oh, woke up. Yeah, he woke her up. She, she woke, woke him up. Yeah, they're sleeping. She wakes him up, and he's got like dilated eyes, and he's just like kind of monstrous in like a sexy, sexy hot way. Yeah, like he doesn't look monstrous. He's just like he's not responsive. Yeah, he's just kind of what's going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like Castile, no. And he like kind of gets ravenous and just like rips her clothes off. No, she's just like in a shirt or something. I think it was like that skimpy nighty that Vanetta got her. Yeah, yeah. And then he just like goes down on her with his fangs and is like really violent about it. But she's like, okay, here we go. (laughs) Yeah, like he's just kind of clarifying. She was like about to like cut his neck open with the blade with her dagger. Which again, we've got Victor there in presence, like in, in spirit, protecting her. And he just like stares at her. And then she kind of realizes that she wants him to eat her out. And so she puts the knife down and he just goes for it. Yeah. He doesn't take any blood that time though. No. And should I say, I was almost like out loud, like, is she going to, cause I know like he needs blood. Like I, you kind of like know that. Yeah. And he's literally like sniffing like yeah. like <laughs> maniacally like maniacally like kind of like uh, not like animalistic. Okay, that's kind of the best word I can explain like his behavior. Yes. Sniffing around and I'm like is she like on her period? Like, maybe she was and maybe it just going, wasn't written in are there. We, are we going to go there? Like is this going to happen? Like I would not I wouldn't be opposed to it because it's I don't know. It's real life. But the funny thing is at the very end, this is just like a fun detail though, is at the very end, he always calls her like her flavor honeydew. And so he kind of comes to, he realizes that like he wasn't quite coherent and he like puts his like fingers to his mouth and he just like whispers honeydew under his breath and he realizes what he's done. And something about that, like the fact that he just immediately recognizes the taste of her is like, very very fantastic (laughs) I don't know a strong enough word to explain how sweet and intimate that was yeah but so so the beach scene follows that and essentially Kieran is just explaining to her what happened right because she finished and was like whatever screaming and stuff Kieran runs in and there's a little bit more to that later yeah because he has an actual response to her because he, because he's a woven mm-hmm. and we're going to, we'll get into that more like, yeah. like in the next book as well. So he seems to know more about it, whatever. She was kind of freaking out. Like, what was that? And he was like, you're okay. So at the beach they're kind of, she's kind of working out like, Oh, well, like what was going on there? And so then we learn that like he needs to feed. We learn the Atlanteans like he has not been feeding from anyone else because, and that's when she really first starts to realize that he actually is in love with her. He's not just like using her as a means to end. Yeah. Having her be his exclusive like mate or as Kieran put it on at the end of this chapter, you are heartmates, which would describe that. So an Atlantean won't feed from anyone else, but their chosen one. And, and he describes it as like, 
it's not that Jay, they're just like making the choice for like monogamy. Like Atlanteans find it repulsive to right. feed from somebody else. Right. Once they establish that emotional right. connection with somebody. Exactly. So he's been not feeding from anyone but Poppy. And the last time that happened was the forest blood sex scene in book yeah. one. And so that's what happens to an Atlantean when they haven't fed for a long time is they kind of lose control. Kieran, he becomes like this messenger because Castile's like out of commission, I guess. <laughs> He needs to like deal with his shit and like he needs to go. I think he's a little embarrassed. He needs to go punch dance his rage out in a wooded glen. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. He needs a minute to himself. Um, and so Kieran is telling is kind of filling in the gaps for her. Um, and I love their little banter about like more questions. Like I just love that. Like he's constantly getting on her case for that, and it's a little funny, but it's also like, of course, she's got questions. She's she has literally no idea what's going on ever, <laughs> ever. And Kieran's the one that's like always there, like making sure she's not stabbing anyone or leaving. And so, he, and that nobody's ever stabbing her. He's like the quiet brooding ones. So then he has to like talk, which I love that. So I'm, I'm loving their dynamic. Mm-hmm. of just like, he has to like start talking because she has to like get these questions answered. I think he's aware kind of, of like when we talked earlier about like Castile doesn't know how to express himself. Mm-hmm. And I think Kieran's aware of that. And I don't think Kieran would say anything that Castile wouldn't want him to. Exactly. He does draw that boundary. Like when they talk about Shay. And exactly. so I think Kieran's saying, and you said this earlier when we were talking, Kieran becomes this like extension of Castile. Yeah. And, and so everything that Kieran's yeah. saying is okay. Yeah. Like they're bond and they've been together for years. Like they've been bonded for years and they're they're bonded as like infants. And they do say that. Like, I don't think that that's like, I surmised that. Like they literally say that they're like, oh, like you sometimes don't know where the one begins and the other ends because you just know each other so well. And then you're bonded and you've just like spent your whole life together. And if Castile dies, Kieran dies. Yeah. No, but it's with the joining. So with the bond, you can live past it, but it's unlikely that you'll bond again, I think is what it is. Okay. So the joining, that's like, I'm excited. Oh. I Oh, that's going to come up at some point. And I know. I know. Oh, I'm ready. oh, I, I really want to give away some of the third book that I read, but I'm not. Um, sorry. It almost happens and it will happen. I think like, I don't know if it happens. Okay. But there's a minute where it almost happens like the first time. And I'm like, damn, are you kidding me? You're going to blue ball me again? Like, Jesus. The funny thing is, okay, so this is another bullshit thing that Alistair had brought up to try to make her uncomfortable because he's just like convinced himself that she's as innocent and pure as the maiden figure should be. And so he can just sex her into or like manipulate her into submission with that kind of stuff. But- Castile clarifies that the joining isn't inherently sexual, but every time they've done like any kind of like blood stuff together, it ends up so horny that like, there's no way you can tell me that it's not going to end up sexual. It really felt like a boomer being like so ashamed of like everything. And then a zoomer or a millennial just being like, yeah, I got to second base. It's not that big of a deal, dad. Like, (laughs) 
So it's like the boomer being like, actually, it's not, or not the boomer. It's like the millennial being like, it's not actually that sexual. And it is. Yeah. (laughs) You don't have to be ashamed about it. And so the shame married with sex in this book, moving into sex being like this realm of discovery is like such an important theme, I think. Yes. Yeah. Especially because like, again, obviously it's all from Poppy's point of view. And so the kind of different facets that you have of this is one Alistair still trying to use it as a means of control for her, Mm -hmm. which does tell me that he's a no good, dirty asshole. Um, He's a butthole. He is a butthole. Um, (laughs) I don't, I don't use this word often because it loses its meaning, but he's a real ass. (laughs) And this is a bit of an unhealthy habit. But the way that they stay con- connected with each other or the way that they fake with themselves and with each other that this is not as emotionally investing as they think it is, is by like having sex and calling it pretending. Like they're going to pretend right. and then just have sex as like, like you can't pretend and do that. Right. Yeah, because there's that point in the book after everyone's finally on the same page and she's confessed her love to him in front of everyone, she's made the choice. They get married. Right. And they're like, I think it's like the after sex haze where they're like, this is not pretending. I'm not pretending. Like it's like this really. Yeah. I, it's so sweet. I, my little heart got a hug. It was nice. Mm-hmm. Like that. <laughs> it's so it's frustrating because well, that's that, that seems not frustrating. Um, the pretending thing is frustrating because they keep doing it and you're like, you're both just lying so hard to yourselves. And then you think they're going to drop it in the cave sex scene. So that's after he feeds on her, I want to say. And so like, he's feeling tons better by this point. She's already kind of recovered and (laughs) they're, She's recovered. Yeah. So they go to this cave that he used to visit with his brother and everything. Well, before we get into that, okay, we need to talk about the almost threesome. Okay. Okay. I think I have very different. Huh? We just did the Cass's bloodthirst or whatever, but I think like the threesome is like a huge. And then we can, I don't know. Okay. No, that's fair. That's fair. So then let's let's cut it in a way that makes it sound like it was continuous. Yes. Okay. So then after the bloodthirst scene, obviously she has to kind of help him somehow because he's obviously not going to help himself. He's not going to go feed on somebody else. He's already made that clear. And so she has to be the one to tell him that it's okay to feed off of her. Right. And so what that leads us to is a near threesome scene. It's, I think I have very different opinions on this than maybe a lot of the fandom based on like what I see people posting. I found it kind of too teasing for my taste. Well, what are you hearing about it? Well, people call it like this like crazy sexy scene between the three of them, but Kieran is mentioned like twice or like three times. And the third time is just him leaving. Right. So all he's really mentioned as, cause he's standing behind her 
holding her pulse so that way Castile doesn't like kill her because he's a little bit too close to the edge for their uh, comfort. And so we're just kind of aware that he's standing behind her and she seems to kind of forget that he's standing behind her until he tells Castile to stop and then he leaves the room. Well, there's that, I think she's very aware that he's there. I know I was. I didn't feel like he was that active of a player. So I really liked that he wasn't very active because it was out of respect because he hasn't established that with Poppy yet. Oh yeah. Like, I think like he's definitely like more of like, he has to be kind of the stoic, I'm just here for the pulse kind of situation. Well, cause the last time he was there and was actively engaging in what they were doing, Castile almost killed him because he, because of the bloodlust. So yeah, I mean, I agree that Kieran did what he should have done in that situation. I just think the th- it's a little overhyped of a scene. Oh yeah, it's it's definitely I was definitely disappointed because I just thought like she was gonna get like 2D. But yeah, same. And but I'm still okay with it because I think like it's just going to make it. I just hope she delivers and delivers good. Like, yeah, you know. It, it's definitely made me more excited for the potential of that real yeah. future threesome scene. And that's what I'm excited for. Well, let me read to you the best part of that. I'm just going to read like a little paragraph. Okay. I needed to think about anything, what it felt to have Castile at my neck, his lips moving, the muscles of his arms bunching under my palms. But it was no use. And oh, God's the connection to him. It was still open. There was hunger, yes, but there was also more. A spicy, smoky flavor filled the back of my throat. The taste, the feeling was heaty and overwhelmed my senses. My body jerked with a pounding flood of desire that weakened my legs. I didn't know how I was still standing or if Castile or Kieran held me up. Each breath I took seemed too shallow as the ache moved to my breasts. Tension coiled tightly inside me to the point of near anguish a razor-sharp type of pleasure that felt its own version of scars. A sound came from Castile, a throaty rumble. And then, oh. and then he moved suddenly, tugging deeply at my throat as he pressed into me, pressed me back against Kieran with unexpected strength. The wolven hit the wall behind us with a grunt as Castile trapped us both. His mouth moved against my neck as his hips jerked against my belly. Oh, gods. Oh, same girl. I loved him. He was just, it was almost like he was like an extension of her. I'm going to, which go, is funny I'm go there because I do think because Kieran is feeling the weight of Castile's hunger as well. Yeah. And probably in more ways than one, because he is bonded to him, which we know like on some level connects them emotionally. Exactly. So he's they have those like silent moments with each other. So he's there to protect him mm-hmm. as well um, from like, he's there in a protective manner to make sure that he feeds properly, but also in a protective manner for her, not only because he probably feels something for her as well, which I'm mm-hmm. hoping, um, but also because Castile needs her. Yeah. So he's there in a protective manner and then also just like gets thrown against the wall which I, I loved that, that he was just kind of this sub, I don't want to say submissive, but. See, I do think he is. 
Yeah, I do think he's submissive. Like it's very clear that Castile's kind of the the powerful, the dominant one in their relationship. And so, like, let's speculate for a second and say they're going to be a throuple. It puts Kieran and Poppy at the same level within that relationship. So not necessarily that it's a triangle, but rather that it's like an arrow. Yeah, you know, like you've got Kieran and Poppy next to each other, but not quite connected. They're connected through their love of Castile. Right. Yeah. Because then you've got the scene in the forest, or sorry, in the like the mist when they're going through the Scotus Mountains, when she wakes up in the middle of the night and like they're all spooning together. And it's just the sweetest little scene. Like it's not sexual. She talks about how like she can feel Kieran cuddling up to her a little bit more because he's cold and he's just like, obviously you want the body warmth. And she's not like repulsed or anything. She's not suddenly like, oh my God, his penis touched me. <laughs> it's just like, she just- Exactly. She just feels comfort with Kieran's presence there. Exactly. So this is what I love about this dynamic with Kieran is that he's completely placid. Yeah. Don't know what he's feeling. Because it's not his role to have that yet. His role is Castile's bound woven. But when it comes to his relationship with Poppy, it's it's gentlemanly, right? So he yeah. doesn't give away anything that he might be feeling. But you know it's there. You know it's there. The same way we knew it was with Castile and Hawk. Yeah, exactly. And I do think like, what I really love about this kind of dynamic, which is why I'm really starting to just fall in love with Kieran. <laughs> I just really want that to like go where I want it to go is that I love the dynamic with the quiet, brooding, placid, gentlemanly man. But then when they're allowed to, like when it like the, the love is confessed or whatever, it's like a switch goes off. Yeah. Whereas like Castile's so upfront all the time which I like that in its own respect yeah. for sure. Like I'm into it. So that's why the, the two of them together is like really nice. And this I'm, is, and this is why you all should read reverse harem. <laughs> <laughs> you get a little bit of everything. Get all of it. <laughs> I, I wonder what it would have been like if she hadn't met Castile as Hawk. Mm. because some of that was a little bit of like he got to be a little bit looser as talk he had to be a different person to kind of win her affections and win her trust and everything and so how much would he be like Kieran because that's the way everyone that they come into contact with that he's known for so long says he is like they all talk about how like he's alive when he's with her he's not quite as reserved his brother was the one what's his brother his brother Malik was the one that was like the wild, uh, unpredictable one, but he's like that with her. Yeah. Yeah. And so how much of that was because he was able to let down the prince mask while he was with her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So now you I know. think we should end on the best part, the best part, which is the cave scene, the cave scene. This is a couple of scenes after the blood scene, the one where he finally drank, finally fed. And he's obviously thankful. They're kind of still in that post-sex haze. Again, it it was a nice experience for them. And so he's showing her this like cave that he used to visit with his brother and with Kieran as kids. 
the cave has a the specific cave that they enter has a hot spring. And so naturally they're going to go skinny dipping. But by this point, she's realized her full feelings for him. Cause this is after she had the beach talk with Kieran. This is after she felt as good as she did during their feeding sex. And as, so once they're finally both naked, they're both in the pool and they're about to start they're like, they're going to start fucking like it's, it's just, it's real rough this time. She stops him and she's like, I don't want to pretend anymore. And it's just like something clicks between them. Yeah. But it's so also frustrating because he's still got his own like mental wall, his blinders on. And he's convinced himself still that it, like she hates him, even though all of the evidence points otherwise, because after the scene, they're getting dressed to leave and she's about to say like let's talk about this and he's like don't worry i know it stays here uh, like yeah like it's not he has it it hasn't downloaded for him yeah 100% like he's she said let's not pretend and he was like okay this is hate sex and it was still hot sex oh god it was a hot scene i think she literally describes it in italics and then Castile fucked. Like, it's not the loving, sensual sex that they've had before. Like, he's trying to fill another hunger that he's been feeling. Yeah. It was... It was bittersweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was good. There was a lot... I need to reread that scene. Do you remember what page that is? Um, it's chapter, so it, it starts at the end of chapter 30 and then it's the, chapter the, 31. The book just opened to it. <laughs> <laughs> it knows, it knows what we need. I have a few books like that. I go back. <laughs> That's the last time that they have the pretending sex because after that point, it turns into her just like aggressively trying to make him see it. And so they have the arguments. She, there's one point when she says, I don't know what you want from me. And he yells at her, I want everything. Because even he, like, until that moment, hasn't been able to admit just how much he cares about her and how much he loves her. Mm -hmm. And so I think if you view the cave scene, the cave sex scene as this kind of like hate sex, what he thinks is supposed to be hate sex, it's very different. Even though she's enjoying herself too, like, she thinks this is the first time they're having sex as themselves. Right. When in reality, they've been doing that the entire time. Yeah. And she just can't see it. Neither of them can see it. Well, she has no experience. Oh, yeah. And he's just like so caught up in his whole like, oh, everyone hates me. Like yeah. monologue in his head that I imagine is constantly going. Yeah. Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> like, what do I talk about now? Actually, I'm going to say something because I'm going to add it to my fuck Alistair list. <laughs> okay. So here's how the last <laughs> chapter goes. So they finally arrive in the, like the border town of Atlantia on the other side of the Skotos mountains and surprise, surprise, Alistair has brought Castile's parents to this town from the capital because he's an asshole, basically. But right. to his surprise, they've actually already married. They married while while 
Alistair was gone. And so Alistair had devised this plan and it's not clear there, but here's how he did it. So we know at this point that Beckett is Alistair's like nephew or great nephew or something, some kind of blood relation. And so he shows up and immediately he asks Castile if they can speak in private. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you can't wait the 10 minutes that it's going to take them to ride to the castle yeah. to talk, to have this conversation. Yeah. And so Poppy doesn't move because Poppy's just sitting on the horse in front of him. And Alistair tries to assert like alone and Castile's like, you can say anything you want in front of my wife. But then Beckett comes up and he's like, oh, I can show her the temple. Yeah. And Poppy's like eager to get away from Alistair because at this point she really doesn't quite trust him just because he has dropped too many bombs, quote unquote, accidentally. And so I think she is growing uncomfortable around him. And so she's like, yeah, I'll go with Beckett. It's fine. I don't have to intrude here. Um, And she feels fear from Beckett. And she thinks like she's convinced herself that it's because Beckett is scared of her abilities. Right. And she's like, I feel bad because like I healed him. I wish he wouldn't feel this scared around me because of my powers. And so they get to the temple and he thanks her for healing him. And then he's gone. And this horde of people show up and try to kill her. They try to stone her. Yeah, they try to fucking stone her to death. And then. So <laughs> the fact that Alistair conveniently has to be alone when they're about to be in a private castle on their own anyway, Beckett was there and ready to take her to the temple and then leads her directly into an assassination attempt. Like, it obviously implicates Beckett. But you have to think, how did Beckett have the opportunity? Alistair, fuck him. But it leads into our discovery that her power is a lot more than we originally expected. Yeah, and then it, like, rains blood. Yeah. And they, like, die. She, I think she does a soul eater situation. Kind of, yeah. I don't know if it's the same thing quite, but that's how it's described, is that she's able to feel their emotions and then of hate and anger that they feel towards her and project them back on themselves and that it essentially kills them. Yeah. And they just kind of melt and their bones splay and turn to dust and shit. And then that's when she's like covered in blood. She's probably glowing. I don't really remember. Probably is because she glowed when she healed freaking the fuck out and everyone comes up and then the Atlantean queen so Castile's mother is like bows she's the first one to bow so Castile's the first one to bow oh yeah no yeah Castile's the first one to bow and then she does and she says and she says bow to your new queen of Atlantia yeah. daughter or like the last living descendant of the king of the gods yeah and, and so this we- fucking bookends yeah, so at this point we know what, but we don't know the why, we don't know the how, we don't know anything else. So that is where we're left now. Yeah. Like there's even theories that I've got now that I'm like scared to say because yeah. I don't know what happens. Yeah. Um, so if I was right, you'll hear on them or hear about them on the next episode. If I was not right, you'll never hear the theories that I have. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> never hear my terrible yeah. <laughs> My terrible I never thought those dumb thoughts. <laughs> I think 
this one rates almost equally with the first one. It's definitely a different book. I like completely. I feel like From Blood and Ash was it very much could have been the way that it began felt like a isolated book. Yeah. It could have like wrapped up and like she would have just been like taken off with Hawk or something. Mm -hmm. But the last chapter just kind of like threw you through a loop. And A Kingdom of Flesh and Fire is a really good second book because there I never felt a lull. Like I read it pretty yeah. And I didn't have the book. I just like literally downloaded it illegally. (laughs) And then of course bought, I had ordered it and that's why I justified it because it wasn't here yet. And I couldn't wait because I'm a child and I was like, I need this book. So I read it like half of it online. Anyway, I guess what I'm trying to say, it's a completely different world than the first book. Yeah. because feels like a completely different series almost. And then because she's like put into this completely different like world definitely has like a life of its own. And that's really exciting when you have a second book, because sometimes the second book gets, it's like the two towers. You're just kind of like, okay, we're just all waiting for things to happen and the wars to kind of go on and drop the ring in Mordor, you know? Well, and the first book is, about establishing this world and then literally destroying everything we know about it. Yeah. So whereas we had to to go back and start from scratch. Yeah, essentially. And it's not annoying at all. It's, it's refreshing. It's it's refreshing. Like it's, it's fun to see the reality because there's so many parts of book one where like as the reader, you can see that she's just like accepting some kind of lie and you want to know what the truth is but she just can't get close enough or she like puts herself in situations where she can't get close enough. Mm-hmm. But in book two, she doesn't have that problem. Right. And the reveal isn't a earth shattering one. It's a personally important one. Right. Armin Trout does a good job of using the plot strategically to work in favor of the character that you love. Yeah. Obviously that's the point of writing but you'd be surprised <laughs> there's a oh, lot yeah, no, of books out there that like don't get that like I am all about the character development I yeah. want to see I want to like the person I'm reading and I want to love where they're going and I want to love why they're doing the things that they're doing and understand that um and Armand Trout does a good job of actually like building a world around that yeah I think I mentioned in in book one, but now that we've got more characters, I do want to reiterate that she has such a firm grasp on who her characters are that the plot seems to happen just really naturally. Yeah, for sure. It doesn't ever feel forced. And if it surprises you, it's because she has a really good reason for it. Yes. Like there's even if it's more to it than you know, like, and she'll- If it does surprise you, it's still not out of character. Yeah. Yes, I'm excited to see where they go, especially especially now that her identity is like fully revealed to see how she gets perceived differently in Atlantia. Well, now that she's some kind of queen. She's literally the queen. Like the queen bowed to her and gave her her crown. Yeah, that's what, yeah. Yep. Yeah. (sighs) Okay, I'm so excited to like dig into this one now. Me too. (laughs) I'm so ready. So ready. (laughs) Well, if you have any fun 
ideas about the book, what we said, anything you want to add, please find us on Instagram. We're at in bed with books underscore one underscore. And we'd love, we are always on there. We'll respond. We always on there. We're like part-time slash unemployed bitches that like, yeah, need something to do. So DM us, follow us, see what we're going to be reading next. Obviously the next episode will be the crown of gilded bones. Yep. The third in this series. And then that kind of wraps up the Armand Trout trilogy for now. I mean, I think she just released the crown of gilded bones in March. Mm -hmm. And so I know she's releasing an adjacent book in the universe in, in a few months. Okay. So we'll most likely cover that one too in the future. So right. you can but, expect that from us. Yeah. And, but for the next couple of weeks, that's, we're going to wrap up that series for now and then start on Serpent and Dove, right? That's yeah. That, I'm excited for that one too. Serpent and Dove, which has two books. And the third one is coming out July 7th, which is literally six. July 27th. Oh shit. Literally in 26 days. So if for whatever reason you weren't able to follow along with us this time and we've spoiled everything for you, you could always get ahead of us and join us as friends. Be our BFFs. Yeah. Be our internet friends. Yes. All right. We'll see you next week. Happy reading. Us waving for an audio. <laughs> I love it. And then Castile fucked. Yeah. Is that the line? That's the line. Yeah. And that's where we end the episode. <laughs> We're just right there.